This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hello! Welcome to Dermalogs. This is a podcast series that's specifically designed for dermatology residents to try to help you get information on topics that you may not have access to at your center. The goal of the series is to try to help you, dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to answer some of your burning questions on some key areas of uh, our practice. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm a dermatologist from East Coast, Halifax, Nova Scotia. I spend about 60% of my time doing community-based medical dermatology practice in my office, and then I spend the other time as the program director for Dalhousie and doing some academic stuff. That's me. This is Dermalogs. Let's get going with our topic for this episode, lasers. So some of you may know Dr. Vincent Richet. He is a clinical dermatologist at Pacific Derm in Vancouver. And he also is a clinical instructor at UBC. So he does teach the UBC residents, but for the benefit of the rest of the country, we get to hear a few tips and tidbits from Dr. Richet. So thanks, Vincent, for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. So, you know, I, I don't know if I'm just really immature or if I'm um, stuck in the body of a 12-year-old, or sorry, stuck in the mind of a 12-year-old boy, but Whenever I think of laser, I still think of the, you know, big frickin' laser, uh, Mike Myers, uh, uh, Dr. Evil. But, you know, I think that it's a really exciting area in dermatology. And I know every time I go to a conference, I see cases and I think, wow, that's really amazing what they're doing um, or how that looks or that scar modification. Um, so I, I like to observe it uh, from afar, but what got you interested in lasers? How did you get down that route? in your practice. Yeah, I was lucky enough as a resident to do a bit of a traveling uh, rotation actually here at UBC Dermatology with Harvey Louie. And uh, he has a really interesting practice where he uh, uses many parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So UV light for phototherapy, visible light, infrared light for lasers. He did use his visible light for PDT. And he's part of a um, multidisciplinary team that uses radiation to treat skin cancer. And so that's how I got initially exposed to it. And, you know, like you, I, there is a, a child inside of me that goes pew, pew, pew when we're firing a laser, right? <laughs> and so I have to be, you know, keep that voice quiet while I'm treating my patients. But uh, <laughs> they don't like the sound effects. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you, you know, we do some amazing things in dermatology with our uh, with our drugs and with uh, uh, our topicals. But it, there is something about using the power of light to really uh, bring transformative changes to patients. Absolutely. Do you now? I mean, we're going to try to focus a little bit on on laser uh, for this podcast, but um, I see some other podcasts in the future that we could talk about other parts of the spectrum. But do you have a favorite part of the UV spectrum, or not UV, but light spectrum? What's your favorite? Yeah, light the electromagnetic source? spectrum. Electro yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah. The uh, you know I think for the longest time, all of the attention and the action was around uh, UV light, right? Mm -hmm. UV has shorter wavelengths, and so it's highly energetic, and so it can cause a lot of biological changes, like sunburn, or uh, has anti-inflammatory properties, such as when we're using it for phototherapy. 
when we're use when we're moving towards the visible uh, spectrum, we're going to be delving more into using lasers and uh, doing photodynamic therapy. And there are a lot of interesting applications, and a lot of them are in uh, cosmetic dermatology that can have some big changes uh, for our patients. And what I like is that it's a combination of geeking out and understanding the science, but also uh, bringing it to the bedside and uh, adapting it to uh, our clinical expertise in such a way that, you know, even though a laser can target a brown spot, uh, a mole and a solar lentigo and melasma are going to really behave differently. And so you, as much as we understand the science, we have to combine it with the clinical expertise to make things work. I feel like you just answered the next question. I was going to ask you what was most satisfying about doing laser and photobiology, but I think, you know, in reverse, you've actually answered that. So um, it, it sounds like, you know, that the application of science, the all these different modalities, and then being able to apply that to patient care is, is sort of, if I if I may, um, what what seems to draw you to I know, it. It's pretty damn close to magic. Not that's, you know, low-level low <laughs> Harry Potter magic, maybe. But uh, yeah, we, we can do some pretty amazing things sometimes. Well, speaking of magic, I do think that during residency, this concept of laser is sort of um, presented to you like this big black box. And, and I think a lot of times when you're listing off treatment options, you you list off laser or you might be able to name the chromophore or the wavelength. But I think in terms of practical application of what laser goes where, it's really it's really challenging. Um, that brings us to our first resident question for this episode. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Sabrina, and I'm a derm resident at the University of Calgary. I have a question related to today's topic on lasers. I feel like lasers are often listed as a treatment option for many skin conditions, but in practice, the type of laser and the specific parameters are not really described. Are there any resources you can suggest uh, to use as a reference for choosing safe and effective laser parameters? Okay, thanks so much, Sabrina. Vincent, what do you think? Yeah, the... Um to me, it's really that combination of solidly understanding the laser science and the laser physics undermining it, and yes, a bit of clinical exposure. For some residents, that might come as an elective where people do laser, but even people after practice in contact with industry get to demo devices and see their colleagues and have an idea of how they might be used in the clinical realm. You know, when I was a resident reading the laser chapter, I remember putting tons of highlighters on some fluences, and that's a total waste of time, right? Because devices are going to behave differently uh, in regards to how they interact with human skin. And so we cannot use a paint-by-numbers approach to choosing a fluence or a posturation or, or all of that. And so my advice to residents would be to uh, try to wrap their head around the laser physics and the understanding of how uh, light interacts with skin, and then to get a bit of uh, real life exposure to uh, apply that. 
Because, you know, what I would really like for uh, residents is if I give them, you know, let's, we can invent a laser. I can give you, okay, you know, we, I build a 900 nanometer laser and it has a nanosecond pulse. What can this laser do, right? And so if we use the science, we might be able to identify, you know, the chromophore that it targets. Is it going to be hemoglobin, melanin, or water? And if it's 900 nanometer wavelength, what is going to be the depth of penetration in skin? We can guess. If we know the science, we can understand that. And even though in day-to-day -day life, we're not doing guesswork, we're applying the, that physical science to the clinical care of our patients. And so from a physics perspective, do you think that there are any good basic reading resources or online resources where you could sort of delve in? You know, if you haven't done a physics uh, background or if it's been since your first year undergrad, is there a way, you know, sort of physics for derm dummies or yeah that's uh you know um the thing uh, maybe you should write that as a book <laughs> oh Sorry. i like that that's a good recommendation <laughs> the you know i actually did give a talk on electromagnetic spectrum for basic science at boss for cda at some point and you know maybe it's time to have that again but uh I think that, you know, when we're learning these complex um, concepts, we just need to dumb them down and simplify them, right? And so mm -hmm. I remember looking into Bologna, but paying really close attention to uh, that basic science. And there was also when I was training a primer from the ASDS, uh, trying to really oversimplify laser science in a way that made it more useful for me. Right. Yeah. So I think I think you can still get that ASDS review um, binder, or at least the, uh, some always seem to be floating around. So that might be a good place to start because I think if you want to apply the math and the physics to it, you know, as ba as basic as you can at least to start. Okay, let's go to another question. Hi, dermalogs. My name is Bahar Barani, and I am a dermatology resident at the University of Toronto, and I have a question about lasers. Uh, there are many lasers that can be used for vascular lesions versus melanocytic lesions, etc. What are the finer considerations for finessing how to choose which laser to treat certain lesions with? Thanks so much for that question, Bahar. I think that this is one of the really challenging things when it comes to lasers, at least in my opinion. Um, I think there's a lot of specific considerations that come with the patient and their preference, but... Let's say, Vincent, just to build on that question, if you had a phototype 2 patient, they had a lot of prominent telangiectasia on their face and they wanted to treat that, would there be a specific choice of laser that you would use in that scenario or would there be a list of options that you could use? Yeah, the um, I'm going to approach it through the basic science lens of things, right? And so when, Thank you. when yes. we're... Uh, wanting to target hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is going to have uh, three peaks of affinity. And uh, these peaks are going to be at 418 nanometer, 542 nanometers, and 577 nanometers. And then after that, the affinity kind of goes lower as the nanometers increase. And there's around 1,000, there's a little blip that's there. And so when we think of the vascular lasers that we have, the KTP532 nanometer device, it latches onto one of those peaks, right? So it has high affinity for uh, uh, hemoglobin. The pulse dye laser, which is usually 585 or 595, has affinity for a closer peak as well. And so these are really commonly used uh, vascular lasers to target uh, telangiectasia in rosacea. 
if we, you know, we because of that peak at a thousand, an NDAG laser that is 1064 nanometers is going to have affinity for blood vessels, but because it has a higher, uh, a longer wavelength, the depth of penetration is going to be deeper. So we might have some uh, concerns. Maybe, you know, a telangiectasia in a patient with rosacea, it's not really deep. It's not in the deep dermis. It's actually, you know, in the, the papillary dermis or maybe the superficial reticular dermis. And so by, you know, knowing where the pathology is and understanding the affinity, then I can reach uh, for, uh, you know, a good device to treat it. You probably get into some trouble. I saw a patient the other day that got referred to me for something else, and then she wiped off her makeup and had purpura everywhere because she had been to a meta spa for some, uh, and this is a whole other topic, mm-hmm. obviously, but she'd been to a, to a medi spa for laser, and when the quote-unquote laser wasn't effective, they had done sclerotherapy, and then they had done sclerotherapy again on all these little tiny telangiectatic vessels. So she's just purpuric and hyperpigmented and bruised everywhere and said, um what do I do? And I said, Oh my God. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's really challenging on our end in Durham. We see sometimes the fallout from people that don't know the science. Mm-hmm. And so I do appreciate it. Th- thinking about it that way. Um, that wasn't really a question that I was asking, but uh, <laughs> do you see that a lot? You probably do. You know, the laser devices are an unregulated industry. And so anyone can just go on Amazon and buy an inexpensive IPL and open their Medispot of their garage, right? And um, mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm not entirely against delegating aspects of the work to technicians or clinicians that understand and that are medically supervised. But uh, you are right. There are people that are, you know, pushing buttons and painting by numbers and maybe might not have the same considerations that we have. You know, when one thing about doing elective procedures, whether they're laser or anything else, is that I spend a lot of time highlighting the potential benefits for the patient, let's say, you know, 30 to 50% lightening of their erythema over one to three laser sessions. But I also spend a lot of time talking about the either the very common or the unlikely but, you know, unpleasant side effects, right? So we go through that list and there are consent forms and photos because when you're doing vascular laser, you know, yes, you're going to feel a bit of an elastic band pain. There might be some swelling and some erythema. Depending on if you're using a pulse dye laser and what the pulse duration is, there might be purpura that could be expected and even desired sometimes, for instance, when we're treating a port wine stain. And there is a small but very real risk of having a tiny little acne pox scar and of the disease recurring, right? And so these are, um, I think this applies to any elective procedures that we do. I think we really have to uh, go through uh, the potential risks. I do think that you're you're always one step ahead of me here because my next question was going to be, you know, in general, how do you discuss, you know, again, laser specific, patient specific or, or modality specific, but how in general would you discuss risks with the patient? So it sounds like you have a consent form and you go through everything, mm. but what are the highlights that I guess you're going to talk about when you're, when you're talking about side potential side effects with laser yeah. um, devices? When, uh- you know, in a consultation, the the first thing that's the most important for me is the diagnosis. And I mean, we know this as derms, right. and that's really going to modulate what's going to happen. I think that the patient's uh, baseline skin type is also extremely important. You know, working in Vancouver, I have a lot of uh, uh, East Asian, South Asian patients, and the way that their skin uh, reacts to laser energy and laser heat is going to be different. And so... Um, 
at the same time, we don't, you know, in, sometimes in medicine and maybe even more in dermatology, we have a tendency to scare people away with risks, right? If I tell my Accutane patients, yeah, you need blood work, your liver, etc. That's not really a good way to start it. <laughs> so when I have the diagnosis for my patient, I, I'll start by talking about the potential benefits, right? This is, so this is your condition. It's not medically dangerous. It's not going to turn into anything bad. Uh, if you're asking me if we can do something about it, I will you know, list the expected improvement, the potential benefits from the patient and the number of treatments that's expected. And then I will go into uh, the list of side effects and I do give written information on this. And I start by what is almost expected in common, right? To have pain when a laser light is shone at your face is, you know, not as going to happen. To have some swelling or some redness, if it's a vascular laser, very common. If it's a pigment laser, they'll often see a little bit of crusting on the skin, right? I make it a point to tell people how long of social downtime they're going to have. And so I just did a vascular laser on a professor who's giving a seminar tomorrow. And, and she knew, I told her, you know, it's going to be obvious to anyone who sees you at a social distance, you're going to be red and swollen like you had a, maybe a bad shrimp, you know. And she said, eh, I don't care. I'm going to tell people I had laser. Uh, you know, for a pigment laser, I tell my patients that they, you know, they're going to have tiny little crusts. So I make it simple. I say, you're going to look like you're recovering from chickenpox for the next week. And so uh, because these are elective procedures, people have to book them at a time that makes sense for them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I do give them numbers, for instance, you know, and, you know, the risk of having a tiny little scar from this laser, I say one in 500 or one in a thousand, depending on the device that I'm using. And something that I spend a lot of time talking uh, about with my uh, East Asian, South Asian patients is the risk of hyperpigmentation. And right. So, I was just about to ask. Yeah, about that, exactly. So, yeah. And so, um, you know, when we're targeting pigment in darker skin types, there's two considerations. Number one, we could accidentally target their normal endogenous pigment and cause hypopigmentation. Or number two, if we deliver a lot of heat energy to the skin, we could cause post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And yeah. uh, that, that risk is very real, and we don't have effective treatments for post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. I should work on it. I think it's going to be the next Botox if I find it, right? You know, I think it is. I see tons of patients that ask about that, you know, whether it be for their acne or their surgical scars or just their whatever, you know, they're like in they're like in planus, like there's a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Exactly. So that is, you know, it's something that kind of gets better with time. And, you know, people are coming in to get a brown spot treated. They don't want to trade it in for another brown spot, right? So we have to give them a reasonable Absolutely. expectation of uh, that that might happen. What are the odds? And also arm them with, you know, sun protection, sun avoidance, and uh, maybe brightening agents, even though it's all still controversial whether they do anything for post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And I guess I'm just thinking about something I learned when, you know, as a resident, it was always never laser a, a pigmented lesion that you consider to be like a nevus or, you know, concern you always want pathology. Does that, does that still stand or am I just living in the dark ages? I think, you know, we are the skin experts. And so I think we can establish, we, we establish diagnoses, actually. We're not just pointing devices at brown things, right? And so <laughs> it's, um, I think it's very, um, the first thing is to have a diagnosis. Obviously, if I look at a lesion for more than five seconds and a cosmetic consult, and I'm not sure that it's not cancer, off it comes and it's biopsied, right? The, um, you know, we still, you know, I think a lot of 
benign moles that appear 100% benign that I have no worry about, I might ablate them with a CO2 laser, but very often I will yeah. shave the surface and send it to the lab during the procedure. In, right. In so you would you would combine treat so you would shave and then you would you would ablate the base to yes one I see yeah yeah I do you know discuss with my patients that once we do laser on something if you know it might change the appearance in the future and that's a small risk but if right. I offer to do laser on it it's because I think it's fully benign. One maybe particularity right. of my practice is that my Asian patients often want junctional nevi treated from their face. So as hmm. that's something that, you know, the lightning from uh, pigment laser to nevi, it's very progressive and it needs many treatments. So it's a slow lightning. So first I have to make sure that I have the right diagnosis, but this is also a demographic that's at lower risk of developing a melanoma, right? And so right. Uh, it's a bit different than uh, from my Caucasian patients. Fair enough. Is there anything you you dislike or you find more challenging about doing laser medicine? Well, I think one thing that you mentioned about the magic of laser is that uh, sometimes my patients have really high expectations of what a laser can do, right? And sometimes, you know, they want, you know, a giant basal cell on the forehead. They're like, can't a laser fix this? You know, so, uh, you know, I think we have to roll people back to uh, uh, sometimes more traditional types of treatments. Um, but, uh, you know, the like any treatment that we use, whether it's a topical, oral medication, surgery, there's going to be a bell curve distribution of the responses, right? And so I would love for my lasers to be 100% reliable all the time, but it is really similar to that other portion of medicine where, unfortunately, you know, one of my patients is not going to do great with mesotrexate for their psoriasis. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to look at or one of the things I, I think one of the challenging areas I find is um when the patients come in to see me with severe acne or emerging acne, I'm I'm happy I can usually get involved and hopefully mitigate a lot of the scarring process. But I do get sent patients a lot that have no active acne left and I don't do any laser or aesthetic medicine. So I, I end up sending them along and then I kind of think to myself, I wonder what the approach is. Do you have a, a you know, sort of, again, every patient's different, but a general approach to a person that has dispigmentation and uh, ice pick scarring from acne? Yeah, acne scarring is really challenging, but at the same time, very re rewarding part of my work. Uh, the And really, when we're talking about treating acne scars, I'll be using lasers that uh, do resurfacing that target water. You know, when right. uh, we look at the wavelengths of laser, by the time we're at 1200 or 1300 nanometer, water is the main chromophore. And so the lasers that are in that area, 1500, 1900, they like water, but they cook it, right? And so that's like an erbium glass or a thulium laser. When we go even further to an, um, an erbium YAG or a CO2 laser, that's 2,900 nanometers, 10,000 nanometers. These lasers like water so much that they're going to vaporize everything that they touch, basically. And so that's an ablative laser. You know, what I would love is a treatment that causes minimal injury and has great results. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet, right? It appears that the amount of injury that I deliver to the skin is going to be proportional with the improvement per treatment for my patients. But it's also going to be proportional to their risks, mainly of hyperpigmentation, uh, infection, and scarring. And so... Right. 
you know, I have to match the patient's objectives and how much downtime they can tolerate, which how quickly they want improvement, right? And what risks they're willing to take. And so for every ablative CO2 resurfacing that I do, I'll probably do 25 or 50 non-ablative treatments where people might look red for a week and they're peeling, but they can still go to the supermarket and go to work. Maybe they right. might get a few questions, right? They're not wearing their balaclava. Exactly, yeah. Causing mass hysteria. <laughs> um. But these are going to be treatment. You know, sometimes I, my acne scar patients, they might get four, six, ten sessions of non-ablative laser over one year, maybe two years, right? And they have right. progressive slow improvement. But what I can tell is that, you know, we don't have gene therapy. A scar is going to remain a scar. We can make it more right. shallow. We can blend it along healthy skin. But uh, if I can improve the appearance of people's scars by 50% after all these treatments, I consider that my job is done. So, so like, yeah. and I think, so like you, I sorry, like being on the forefront and aggressively treating scarring acne, yeah. right? I, I really feel that it's a disease that's undertreated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's, it, you just, you're, you're, I, for me, I feel like my stomach just drops when, uh, you know, a teenager or a young person comes in and they're already scarred because you're just thinking, ugh, if only I'd seen you one, two, five years before this. Um, as you were saying all that, I was thinking about managing expectations. And I think it sounds like when you counsel your patients, you give them relatively realistic and, and probably low-balled expectations about what type of improvement they, they should get. Um, I, I think it's also important for the residents to hear that, you know, it's not 100%, you're not expecting everything to be, uh, you know, a, a home run, and that some treatments, as you just mentioned, can can go over months to years uh, to get your final result. And so, you know, I, I it's something I don't necessarily think about. I kind of send people off and then kind of think that's one treatment, and next thing you know, that everything's perfect, but it's <laughs> not really reality, so... Yeah, when I'm discussing those benefits, I'll often give a bit of a fork. You know, I'll say, okay, I think we can improve those telangiectasia 50 to 80% over one to three treatments. Part of, you know, and I think anyone who is doing elective services needs photo documentation and quality photo documentation because you know what? Yeah. You forget your patients and they forget to, they don't remember what they looked like two months ago before their treatment. And so that documentation is just really uh, paramount. And I think that goes, with, you know, actually really like photo documenting my medical practice too, because we do some amazing things there. And what do you do in terms of, like, do you have a photographer in your office? Do you have a setup? You know, are they always in the same position with the same lighting? How do you, how do you store those photos? I guess here I'm just, there's 50 questions, answer them all in a row. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky enough to work at Pacific Derm. So this is Dr. Jason Rivers's baby and he has a lot of experience, but knowing the importance of photo documentation, Right next to our waiting room is actually a small photo room that uh, has a Nikon camera that's hooked up to a bit of an articulated arm so that they can take standardized photos head on 45 degrees, 90 degrees of our patients. And so our staff, before seating patients when they're booked for a procedure, they will take their photos and they will hand them their consent forms to look into before we get started. And so that's it. Uh, 
I think it is because it's so important as part of the elective services that we provide. Uh, I think it is absolutely important. And we use a uh, service called PhotoFinder, which basically is a type of cloud storage uh, to keep all those photos. And would that be, now this may vary from clinic to clinic, but would that typically um, incur a direct cost to the patient without being part of the consultation fee that you would already have worked in? Um, we, I, I think it is probably embedded within the cost of their treatment, but it is not an item. I think it is so important and so vital to the service that we provide, both to show patients their improvement, but for medical legal purposes and, you know, oh, this is new, but oh, actually it was there the whole time, but now you're paying attention to it because your treatment cleared this or that, right? And so, right. Um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's probably, it's, it's, probably hidden in our fees but it's not itemized okay sorry that was more of a logistical no, question, absolutely i know these are the type of things that sometimes residents or patients ask me and then i go i don't totally know <laughs> Do you, so i think i already know the answer to this question but um you know and i don't think there probably is an answer but let's say that you're finishing up practice and you have an interest in pursuing um some uh, light medicine and you want to do lasers and you want to incorporate that into your practice. If you're not joining a place like Pacific Dermatology that's already all set up, um, do you have any tips or suggestions for residents? You know, is there, if you could just buy one laser, is there sort of like that magical, you know, Cadillac laser or should you start with a, you know, something simple? It, it, I mean, that's a really loaded question, but do you have any basic... <laughs> Basic tips, they should all come out and work with you. I don't know. How would you advise a, a, a new grad? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that everyone needs to do a one-year fellowship to use devices in their office, I think. Um, and as you know, we keep learning after our residency so much, right? Um, and we are lucky to have a small but pretty close-knit community. And I think it's worth establishing uh, these relationships because we can learn a lot uh, from our colleagues. In terms of what does one want to acquire for their practice, it's really going to be very uh, depending on what type of treatment patients they treat, right? One yeah. device that is very popular is to uh, is an IPL, an intense pulsed light, right? I often like yeah. to uh, contrast and compare IPLs uh, with my residents because an IPL is not a laser, it's a broadband light. And so it can emit from 400 nanometers to 1200 nanometers. So if you think of your chromophores, it can actually target red, it can target brown, and it can target water. So do a bit of rejuvenation at the same time. Sounds amazing, right? But Yes, I want one. <laughs> <laughs> but it has a large spot size. And because it targets many things at once, sometimes it can be a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And it has a lower therapeutic index. Because if you jack right. up the IPL to target red, it's also targeting brown at that time, right? But, uh, you know, an IPL, it doesn't have a lasing medium inside. And so it's a fraction of the cost of a laser and it can do many things. Right. But, you know, again, our industry is a bit unregulated. And in my mind, all devices are like a scalpel blade. And so the operator and how they're being used is very important. 
Absolutely. But if you're starting yeah. out in practice and no one else is offering these elective services where you uh, live, you know, potentially, you know, an IPL can treat fair-skinned patients who have telangiectasia and some solar lentigenes and provide a bit of photo rejuvenation. And so that is a, um, a device that can do a lot of things and that is not as costly as a laser. And I guess that's the other thought, too, when you when you have uh, these devices, you know, upkeep, um, disposables, all those types of things are something you'd have to factor in when you're deciding um, who's going to run the laser and, and how often. I, I suspect those are... Absolutely. Purchasing a laser is a huge uh, business decision, right? Because there is upfront cost, maintenance cost, insurance, uh, some... You know, more and more lasers have consumables, which uh, you are kind of transmitting that cost to your patients, right? And then, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think uh, a big part of it is knowing, knowing your uh, patients, right? What what is the service that is needed, right? Because there might be a wonderful three hundred thousand dollar laser that is very good at treating tattoos, but there's not that many people wanting tattoo removal in our offices. They're not really seeing us for that, right? And uh, these are services that are kind of widely available. And so you kind of, you have to find that niche where you will uh, be, you know, taking care of your own patients for needs that they actually have. You know, I really love my medical dermatology practice. My practice is about 50-50, but I also love the fact that I don't necessarily have to send my patients away for their elective services, you know, we already have a relationship, we know each other, and uh, it's an equally rewarding part of the work. Absolutely. Well, I, I always think at the end of these, you know, um, I like to ask the people that I'm interviewing, do you have any specific pearls, tidbits, just stuff that we didn't cover? Because, you know, I don't always have a I have a list of things the residents want. And like you said, with this one, the residents kind of wanted, you know, what laser do you use where, how do you finesse it? What about dark skin type? And I think we've touched on a little bit of that, knowing that some of it is very, very uh, patient specific. But do you have any pearls or tips or things that you think we should discuss that would be of benefit to them? One thing that I don't think is really discussed in books that much, but I really picked up during my fellowship is that, uh, the biological endpoint, so what is happening on the patient's skin while you're doing the procedure, is one of the most important things. And so, you know, as we were discussing, you know, laser treatment is not just a paint by numbers, go fire, and uh, off you go, right? For instance, you know, that patient that we were discussing that treating telangiectasia of rosacea, if I'm using uh, my KTP 532 laser, my biological endpoint is that I want persistent coagulation of that telangiectasia after I've shone the light. So when I begin the treatment, I don't really know what fluids I'm going to use. I start low, I treat a few areas, and I have a look. If that telangiectasia doesn't disappear or it reperfuses, I'm not treating the patient enough, right? So I'm going to adjust my fluence or maybe adjust my pulsuration according to the size of my target. And so the biological endpoint for a KTP laser is to have persistent coagulation of telangiectasia. If I use, let's say, a pulse dye laser and I want to treat a port wine stain, we know that a port wine stain will be better. You know, the pulse dye laser is kind of the gold standard to treat a port wine stain. And if I generate purpura, the patient's going to have better improvement. So my biological endpoint is the minimal dose that's going to induce immediate purpura as I'm shining it on the patient. 
a you know Q-switch lasers like the alexandrite laser that target pigment, they created what's called an immediate whitening reaction. So there's a tiny little fine white crust on the surface of the skin. And so I adjust my settings as I look to the patient. And that's probably something that a technician or you know someone who's just buying an IPL out of the in their uh, garage can't really do. And so that doesn't necessarily apply to all our lasers. Some lasers don't have really an evident biological endpoint, and it requires a bit of experience and a bit of uh, recipe following, if you will. For instance, when I do that non-ablative resurfacing for acne scars, you know, patients get red and the skin looks a bit swollen, but it's, you know, because I'm following initially some safe patterns and after that integrating my experience that I uh, know what to expect. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think there's a lot of considerations, obviously, and um, really, you're alluding to the art of medicine there. I mean, you know, it's not just, it's not just a paint by numbers, you can't just fall. I guess I've always thought about the physical, you know, the handle of a laser, you just have to press the button, it's really getting all those settings, right, and choosing what you're doing. It's not the physical functioning of the hand piece. And so I think there's a lot of complex uh, physics and math and thought that goes into that part that I think we underestimate when you're reading in a book. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think uh, that it's easy, t- like our patients, to think that the laser is magic in a way, because, you know, it's pretty amazing to think that a light would like a color and seal a vessel tight. But um, you're right, there is a uh, Uh, We're really trying to translate that science and that, you know, geeky laser physics portion of it to, you know, both the diagnosis of the patient, but really the uh, what we can observe on the skin as derms with the morphology. I think we talked a little bit about, you know, I think we touched on um, uh, the chromophores, you know, hemoglobin and melanin and water, which are the main ones. But I guess I just wanted to, to loop around to some hair removal um, laser. And I don't know if you do much of that in your practice, or if you have a favorite um, hair removal laser, but I know that's something people come in a lot to my office, and they either have dark skin and dark hair, or they have fair skin and blonde hair. And I'm thinking, I, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm not really sure. Um, any thoughts on that? I always feel I'm like the perfect candidate for hair removal laser. Like <laughs> I've skin, got really hair. pale skin and really dark hair. So, you know, I don't know. Well, you might be right because, uh, you know, the um, the absorption curve for melanin is not really a curve, right? It's kind of a monotonic decrease. So as you increase the wavelength, there's less and less affinity. But because there are those peaks with affinity at hemoglobin in the four and 500 range, and because water is kind of alone at 1200 and onward, there's kind of that window from 600 to 1000 where we have lasers that like melanin. When, uh, you know, laser hair removal is part that this is kind of a technology that has been commoditized, right? Like every mm-hmm. at every corner store, there's a Medispa that is offering it, probably because, you know, they're creating smarter devices that are uh, easier to operate. But if we if right. we think of the science and if we think of the safety for dark skin, when we're in that range, we don't want the laser light to be delivered to the dermoepidermal junction where the patient has their own endogenous pigment, right? And so mm-hmm. the safest laser to treat dark skin is going to be at an NDAG 1064. 
because it's one of the deepest penetrating lasers and it's kind of going to uh, home in on that deeper pigment that's within the hair and it's going to ignore those superficial layers. And so that is, uh, you know, I, often when I have Asian or uh, brown or black patients, you know, I just write NDAC 1064 on a piece of paper and I say, make sure that this is the laser that they're using where you're going. Um, you know, I'm we're lucky here because uh, VGH Skincare Center actually has a laser hair removal service that's operated by a nurse. And so, you know, my patients with hydradenitis suppurativa or bad eczema that want, you know, they're going to be turned away at a Medispa, right? And so uh, they can go there and someone Absolutely, who's yes. competent uh, can be our ally in the community during those treatments. Right. Yeah excellent to, to think about that as well because I, I don't but um and in a way you are yeah. right that contrast is important right if someone has red hair or super fair blonde hair you know there's not much melanin there to target and pheomelanin doesn't have super high affinity and so they're the laser light you know what is it going to pick up there's no chromophore for it to target and that's a good way to think about it, I think, for residents. You know, you're thinking about where, even just explaining it that way, you know, thinking about where the base of the hair follicle is going to be in darker skin or thinking about the amount of pheo versus eumelanin. I think that's, um, you've really uh, reminded me of all the very interesting science around lasers that I have to admit I kind of forgot about. So uh, thank you for that. My pleasure. And thank <laughs> And thank you so much for joining me for this podcast, because I, I think there's a lot of really good information there. And, uh, you know, for residents that are interested, that hands-on once they're done, I think is um, something that is probably invaluable, but, uh, and going going to work with people with experience. And then if they truly have that, you know, deep-seated light passion that you have, uh, you know, fellowship's probably a good idea, so. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm, Sometimes people think that doing a fellowship means you're going to do that your whole life, but it just allows you to have, you know, an uh, extra arrow in your quiver and you can make it what you want afterwards. Very good. Well, thank you again so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me here uh, from coast to coast. You're a trans-Canadian and... dermatologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need a name that says that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I've enjoyed chatting with you and I think, you know, there's still a lot of other um photo medicine that we could probably talk about uh in in future podcasts so oh, yeah if you want to geek uh, out on phototherapy or photodynamic therapy you know who to call i'm gonna read my 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 physics background first so i'm gonna be more well equipped <laughs> to chat with you but thanks again my pleasure Dr. Vincent Richet is a dermatologist that practices in Vancouver at Pacific Derm, and he also completed a fellowship in photobiology and cutaneous laser surgery at the University of British Columbia. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we're going to be looking at how to start a biologic with Dr. Perry Graywall. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask or you have any ideas about future topics that you think we should cover, let us know. Call us toll-free at 1-877-337-6564 or that's also 1-877-DERM-LOG. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.